Our first reading is from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 9. Nuestra primera lectura será en el profeta Isaías, capítulo 9. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the deep darkness. A light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. For you have a shadow, the joy that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used the bottle, and every garment rolled in blood will be dusting for burning, will be fuel for the fire, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder, and he will call a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Father, of the greatness of the, his government and peace. There will be no end. He will ring on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, read from the King James Version of the Bible. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished, and she would be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. The word of the Lord. Thank you, We are here in the Christmas season. Uh, my name is Johnny Christine. If you came in a little bit late, I'm the lead pastor of Christ Church Vienna, and I am excited to have you here on Christmas Eve because I love Christmas. Well, I loved it when I was little, and then I just got old. So Christmas season is, if, if you're a kid, different than if you're an adult. If you're a kid out there, Christmas season is, to coin a phrase that a friend of mine uses, awesomeness. It is pure awesomeness. The lights, the music, the cookies, the tree with the presents under it, and the possibility, slight though it is, of snow. At least every once every 10 or 30 years, you get a white Christmas here in the D.C. area. 
And I remember as a kid just dreaming about it. And that's what a lot of Christmas is for kids is because it's a magical season. When I say magical, I mean that in the way that um, any season can be if you, let me put it this way. If you read a book or you watch a movie, you can transport yourself as a kid into the land that it's talking about. Narnia or Hogwarts or, or Arendelle. And Christmas can be that sort of thing. Your imagination transports you every December into that land and its awesomeness. As an adult, we might say the word is stressfulness. (laughs) Part of it is this desire, this need in some of us to make it perfect for everyone and say yes to everything. And some of that is also mixed with nostalgia. If you're an adult and have fond memories of Christmas, you want to go back to when all the family were around or you were a kid. And so every Christmas season, it has to be just so and no Christmas season can be. And so it's stressful, and then you get to the end, and it's exhausting, and you get to December 24th, and you think, if I can make it to December 26th, everything will be good. But you know what? That's probably a lot more like that first Christmas. I think for Joseph and Mary, that first Christmas was more stressfulness and exhaustion than awesomeness and fun. You have to remember, Joseph and Mary were poor, and they were peasants, Mary was a pregnant teenage mom. She was scared. It was not a good future for you if that was your state. You'd be excluded from your family or worse. And then Joseph and Mary, though they're engaged and she's pregnant, get ordered around by the Roman census. Rome was the power of the world at that time. And they ruled by force, by meanness and sword. And everyone in in Jerusalem and in all the world, or in all of Israel and all the world, was commanded to go back to the town of their ancestors in order to report who they were and basically pay taxes. So they're being ordered around. They're having to walk, you know, 70 miles or something like that from Nazareth where they lived. Mary's pregnant. There's no little donkey like that Disney small one thing. She's on foot. They get there to Bethlehem. There's no room in the guest room. They have to stay with the animals. The baby's born, laid in a feeding trough, and she's probably just exhausted. And then a few months or a year or two later, they're fleeing for their life. You see, Herod was the sub-king, so the Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, most powerful guy in the world, right? Just below him, at least in that area in which Jesus' parents, Joseph and Mary, lived was this guy named Herod. He was king over that region. He was sort of a sub-king, and he was ruthless and evil and used the sword as well. Well, he finds out about this baby being born because these three wise men, or some wise men, we don't know how many there were, according to Matthew 2, show up and say, hey, where's the Christ, the Messiah, the future king? And Herod's like, it's my son is the future king. What are you talking about? They show him some prophecies, and they say, okay, we're going to go to Bethlehem and find if that's where the Messiah, the baby, is born. And Herod says, okay, when you go and find this baby, tell me about him. I want to go worship him too. Herod wanted to go kill the baby. So the kings, the wise men, the sages go. They worship Jesus, gold, myrrh, frankincense, and then told in a dream they don't go back to Herod. They disappear to their own land, to the east. Herod finds out about it, and what does he do? He has very bad intentions for baby Jesus. There's a Christmas carol, doesn't sound very Christmassy, from the 15th century, the Coventry Carol, 
it has a line like this that actually sums up what Herod does. Herod the king, in his raging, charged he hath this day his men of might in his own sight, all young children to slay. That was his plan. I use the verse so as not to scare any kids. But you should be scared. Herod wanted to see a way with all the young children. Joseph is warned in a dream, and they flee. Now, you have to remember this. This is sort of a side part of the, the narrative of Jesus and his birth. But in his first year or two, his mother and father, they're poor peasants from Israel with a newborn baby, maybe a one-and-a-half-year-old, and they have to flee. They go on foot from the area near Jerusalem to Egypt. That first set of parents were refugees. They were immigrants fleeing violence in a world that is still today where the powerful prey on the less powerful. And violence and trauma are all that they had to experience. If they stayed, they would have dealt with what every other parent dealt with within a couple of days, the tears and crying of their children being eliminated by a ruthless dictator. I think that first Christmas was very stressful for them. What do you think Mary and Joseph wanted that first Christmas? What would be the present they were looking for? Actually, that's a good question for all of us tonight. So let's do something. Let's, let's do a little, uh, well, not a game, but this will be an opportunity if you never got to share what you wanted for Christmas to say it out loud, okay? So if you're the sort that doesn't like to say anything out loud, don't do it. Otherwise, I want you to play this game with me. And this is not just children, but if you are a child, this is your opportunity to be clear on what you want for Christmas, doesn't mean you're going to get it, but it's your opportunity to be clear about it. So I'm going to say uno, dos, tres, and then we're going to say it, okay? I've got a very little bit of Spanish. So when I say it, I want you to say the one thing you want for Christmas, okay? So it'll be uno, dos, tres, go. Adults and children, loudly. The one thing you want for Christmas. Uno, dos, tres, Coffee. That's right, coffee, good answer. That's all I want for Christmas, actually. So tomorrow, I just want coffee. Did anyone say real estate, like Lucy? No. I think Mary and Joseph, you know what theirs would have been? To be left alone. To be left alone. They probably, their Christmas wish would have been, can we go back nine and a half months? Can we undo what the angels said and what's happened to us? Can we just go back? To when we were nobodies in Nazareth about to get married? Can we do away with, I mean, their entire lives for a couple of years were just fear. The whole narrative of that first Christmas is confusion, startled, disturbed, fear, fear. And in the King James, the shepherds are not just afraid. What are they? They are sore afraid. I think that means very, very afraid. They were sore afraid, confusion, anxiety, and they probably wondered again and again, why me? Their life was incredibly hard. They were poor. They had to flee. They were afraid. But you know, that's how the God of the Bible chooses to enter the story, into the mess and fear of the powerless, facing the violence of the powerful. If you feel powerless, 
You know what happens? In any moment when you feel powerless, whatever that is, you're afraid. And fear brings out two things in us as humans. It's the, the need to fight or to flee, right? Fight or flight. It's either I'm going to get violent and fight back or I'm going to avoid and shrink away and escape. And it's why when we are afraid or we feel somewhat powerless for whatever reason, we look to the strong or somebody strong to defend us, protect us. When I was in elementary school, I was the shortest kid in each grade, except for Sarah Gregg, who happened to be shorter by just a little bit in every single grade, thankfully. But I was literally the shortest kid every single grade in third, fourth, fifth, sixth grade. And my best friend, I look back on it, my best friend in third and fourth grade was the tallest kid in third and fourth grade, Brian Holtorf. And then in fifth and sixth grade, Brian wasn't in my class anymore. My best friend was Dave Prell, who happened to be then the tallest kid in the school. He beat out Brian. And I don't know if I chose them on purpose or kind of accidentally, but it did make a difference when you're on the playground. Like when I'm in an argument with Justin Paris over the rules of kickball and Brian Holtorf is behind me, I'm good. And a little later on, when I was ready to kind of argue with uh, Corey Williams, who is at least six inches taller, I was like, and I knew how I had Dave behind me. In real life, we do the same thing too. It's probably some of the appeal of gangs. When you're alone, you know you're vulnerable. But when you're together, you feel safe, you feel strong. It's why many of us have turned to politics as savior. As one commentator noted, there's deep anxiety about our culture and where it's going for many people. And so we wonder who will defend us. And we look for the next president or political cause. Then everything will be better. Then I'll be safe. In first century Israel, you had no chance of being safe. Rome was all-powerful, and they ruled by the sword. They would tax you or enslave you, or execute you. And you had no way out, no rule of law, no rights, except for the Roman sword. There was a group of Israelites, Jewish zealots, they were actually called the zealots, who wanted to overthrow Rome. See, in that idea of you're powerless and you are afraid, you either want to fight or flee, the zealots were ready to fight. They were taking up the sword and they were awaiting They were awaiting God's king, God's Christ to come, the one who was going to save them from their enemies. They were looking back to Isaiah 9 that Jorge just read for us. In the middle of that, it it has this promise that God would overthrow the evil powers. It says, for you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, God's people, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. You're going to shatter it, God. Every warrior's boot used in battle, these are the Roman soldiers, every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. God is going to come, they knew it, Isaiah 9 said it, and he was going to bring a warrior king who would overthrow the evil powers. They were looking for that strong man. But when God did come, it was not as a general, but as a peasant baby. And that's the question of the Gospel of Luke, and especially of Luke 1 and 2. Who is powerful? The story tells you again and again that there are these people. Quirinius was governor, Herod is king, and Caesar Augustus is emperor of the entire world. They are ordering people around left and right. You go here, you sit down here, you pay taxes over there. We're going to kill all of your children here. So it's Caesar Augustus, 
or this peasant baby born to a teenage mom laid in a feeding trough. And of course, the story goes on where this baby grows up to be Jesus. He starts talking all sorts of things, all sorts of amazing things about the kingdom of God. He's doing all these mighty deeds, and it looks like he might be the king. He might be the powerful one who would overthrow Caesar, but then Caesar steps in. The power of Rome steps in, and the Jesus is crucified. He loses. Except a chapter later, that Jesus after he's being buried in a tomb, is found to be not in the tomb anymore. The tomb is empty. In the book of Acts, the story goes on that early believers believed that Jesus wasn't just the Messiah, but he was God. He had risen from the dead. And at the end of the book of Acts, one famous guy named Paul, who was an unusual convert, he's preaching in Rome in front of the future Caesar and emperor telling him about Jesus. And of course, centuries later, the movement of what Jesus was doing continues on. To this day, Rome, it's known for pasta. Which one was more powerful? Caesar or the baby? Tom Holland, not Spider-Man, Tom Holland, the historian, an English historian, wrote a book called Dominion. Tom Holland's not a believer in God himself, but he was a historian. And he spent his life studying the Persians and Greeks and Romans. And he said, though, as he studied them more and more, what he realized was that their values, the values of ancient Persia, of the Greek powerful city-states, of Rome in its greatest political like high, high ends, their values were alien to him, a secular atheist Englishman. He writes, it was not just the extreme callousness that unsettled me of these cultures, but the complete lack of any sense that the poor or the weak might have the slightest intrinsic value. Why did I find this disturbing? Because in my morals and ethics, I was not a Spartan or a Roman at all. And even though he didn't believe in God, he said, assumptions that I had grown up with about how society should be organized and the principles that it should uphold were not bred of classical antiquity not the Persians or the Romans or the Greeks, still less of human nature, but very distinctively of that civilization's Christian past. And that civilization's Christian past, Christianity's past, makes a claim that what is strong, what is powerful, how do you get victory in this world? How do you stay safe? How do you win? We have answers. A gun. And others will say, well, the pen is mightier than the sword, just your words. Or it's the vote. The vote is mightier than the sword or the pen. Or money. We all know that, right? Money is actually the winner, right? Christmas's claim is that it was the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a feeding trough. To make his entrance into humanity... God chose a tiny, no-name town and a virgin's womb. In the book of Luke that we just had read, Mary responds to this choosing of her with a song called the Magnificat, in which she declares in the middle of it, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and has exalted the humble and meek. 
Mary sings of a God of surprising reversals, using weak people to accomplish mighty things, filling the hungry and sending the rich away empty-handed, calling a peasant girl like her to be blessed. The all-powerful creator of the universe came to us in the form of a helpless baby. God with us drew near in that baby. The angels said to the shepherds, fear not. I know you're sore afraid, but fear not. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be the sign you shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. God incarnate came as a baby because God incarnate is God revealing himself as a relational and loving God. If you today, tonight, feel alone in this world or depressed, like the world's against you, like you don't really have even a family that's for you, if you are living in poverty, struggling to make ends meet financially, if you know what it is to flee violence in your own life, or if you just feel like life is just hard sometimes, there's a lot of sadness and grief that you've experienced, not sure how you can make it through another year, God Almighty, the Lord of the universe, gets you. He entered powerlessness. He faced evil. He experienced poverty and violence firsthand. He knows rejection, suffering, and heartache. As Pastor Tim Keller wrote, at the heart of heaven is not merely a generic God, but the triune Christian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are united in infinitely dear mutual love. This God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is personal, relational, loving. This personal, relational, loving God became one of us, that we might become one with Him. The creator of the universe is relational and personal and wants you to know Him. This is what Christmas has been singing to all of us for 2,000 years if we are willing to listen. Look, if this is hard for you, if you kind of struggle with doubt, skepticism, like Tom Holland, not Spider-Man, if you're not really sure you can buy into all this about Jesus, you're not alone. Don't worry, it's not easy stuff. But don't give up on the story. In verse 19 that we didn't read, there's this great line. After Mary is met by the, meets the shepherds and then they go away, she's just blown away by everything that's happening to her. And it says, Mary kept all these things, everything that had just happened to her, the angels, the shepherds, the stories, the annunciations, and pondered them in her heart. It may be too much for you to buy into this Jesus or trust him tonight, but it's not too much to consider, to ponder it in your own heart this year. Let's pray. God, our Father, this night we celebrate the birth of your Son, Jesus Christ. And as we look on the child that was laying in that manger and wonder, what or who is it? And see the one that overcame the Caesars and the empires, that overthrows the violent and the powerful, and reveals to us a God who loves us. May we ponder well the gift of Jesus for us this Christmas. Amen.